Welcome to Ped Soup, the podcast that covers topics throughout the world of pediatrics. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy, and on this episode, we're going to talk dehydration and fluid resuscitation. Even today, dehydration is still one of the leading causes of morbidity and mortality in kids, both in the United States and around the world. When kids, especially infants and toddlers, get sick, they're particularly vulnerable to becoming dehydrated, both because of physiologic factors like higher insensible losses and because they depend on other people for access to fluids. Dehydration is pretty straightforward to treat. You give them the fluids that they need. But getting your diagnosis and management plan settled takes a little more work. We'll work our way through with a case. A five-year-old boy who's had diarrhea and vomiting for the last week or so comes in to see you. He's not eating or drinking much, especially in the last couple of days, and what he does take in comes back up pretty quickly. Like with anything else, the history you get is going to bring you a long way toward diagnosing dehydration. When you hear about poor intake, vomiting, diarrhea, or a decrease in tears or urine output, it should all be a trigger to pay attention to the child's volume status when you do your examination. If you have a recent baseline weight, that's also helpful to determine how dehydrated the patient is since every gram of weight lost correlates with one milliliter of fluid. That brings us to an important point. When we talk about percentage dehydration, as in this kid looks 5% dehydrated, it's in reference to a percentage of baseline body weight. Muscle, bone, and the rest of the solid body mass is hard to lose, particularly in the short term, so we typically assume that any weight lost is fluid. To keep it easy right now, if you have a patient who weighs 10 kilograms at baseline and comes in weighing 9.5, That's a 5% weight loss, which, when the history fits, we assume is fluid. In this case, it's 500 grams, so a 500cc fluid deficit. It's possible to do the same thing with pounds and ounces, but there are more steps involved to convert that to an amount of fluid to give back, and the less math, the better. When you examine a potentially dehydrated patient, you want to pay particular attention to the signs of volume status. In 2004, Michael Steiner and his colleagues published a review article in the Journal of the American Medical Association on the best way to evaluate dehydration. After reviewing 13 studies, they found that long capillary refill time and abnormal skin turgor were the most specific individual signs, but that looking at all the signs together as a whole was much more reliable. They also found that lab studies weren't very useful for diagnosing dehydration, Elevated blood urea nitrogen was sensitive and specific for patients who had severe dehydration, but at that point, things have become pretty obvious clinically and you shouldn't need a lab to tell you what to do. A quick aside about skin turgor. You hear it mentioned a lot going through medical school and residency, but it's not always very well explained. Turgor is basically how elastic the skin is and how quickly it comes back to its usual shape. If you pinch up a skin fold, it should snap back into place almost as soon as you let go. Go ahead, try it on your arm now. I'll wait for you. Did you see your skin jump right back to where it was? In someone who's dehydrated, the skin doesn't hold its shape as well, and instead of popping back, it will kind of slowly ease back down to where it was. This can also happen in older patients as collagen breaks down, but this is a pediatrics podcast, so we're not worried about that group. If your skin took a couple seconds to come back down, please pause and go get a glass of water before you keep listening. Getting back to our patient, he's tachycardic, but his blood pressure is fine. He has dry skin and tacky mucous membranes, and he's kind of irritable when you try to examine him. He weighs 18 kilos today, but we don't have a recent baseline weight because that would be way too easy for this. That means we'll have to use his exam findings to figure out where he fits on the spectrum from mild to moderate to severe dehydration. Mild dehydration is usually classified as a 3-5% to 5% fluid loss, 
and as you might guess, the symptoms are pretty minor. There might be a slight increase in heart rate or slightly fewer wet diapers, but that's about it, so most of your diagnosis is going to have to come from the history you take. Our patient looks a little more dried out than that, with a dry skin and mucous membranes, so we'll keep going. At the other extreme, patients who are severely dehydrated have lost 10% or more of their body weight in fluid, and are close to shock if they aren't already there. These kids look bad. They're lethargic, hard to wake up, and they have tachycardia, long capillary refill time, and cool extremities as their bodies clamp down peripheral vessels to focus on maintaining perfusion for vital organs. If your patient has all of these signs and their blood pressure starts dropping, that means the body's compensation mechanisms are starting to fail, and that kid needs to get to the ICU sooner rather than later. Thankfully, our patient is definitely not that sick, and we can save critical care for a different episode. Our five-year-old looks like he's in between the two ends of the spectrum with moderate dehydration, which goes along with 6-9% to fluid loss. You'll see dry or tacky mucous membranes, slightly sunken eyes, increased heart rate, and a little slower than normal capillary refill with decreased skin turgor. One more thing before we get to treatment. If your patient is showing signs of moderate or severe dehydration, it's a good idea to get a chemistry panel fairly early on. I said before that labs don't help much in making the diagnosis of dehydration, and that's still true. But knowing if your patient's serum sodium is high, low, or normal can affect what you do in terms of treatment. We'll only do the basics here. Hypo and hypernatremia really deserve their own episode. But keep sodium status in mind when you're deciding a treatment course. Now that we've decided our patient is moderately dehydrated, we know he needs fluid, but how are we going to give it to him? For mild or even early moderate dehydration, oral rehydration therapy is often enough. In the 60s and 70s, researchers discovered that because of co-transport of sodium and glucose in the gut, it was possible for patients to still absorb water even with ongoing diarrhea. All you had to do was mix water, salt, and sugar in the right proportions. This sounds pretty obvious now when there are aisles and aisles at the store full of drinks that are specially formulated to maximize hydration, but at the time it was a huge deal. In the first half of the 20th century, the mortality rate from cholera was anywhere from 30 to 50%. For perspective, some other things with a similar mortality rate include untreated generalized tetanus, unvaccinated smallpox, and falling out of a fifth floor window. After the World Health Organization developed and distributed an oral rehydration formula, cholera mortality dropped to less than 3%. Mixing salt, sugar, and water basically made the difference between falling from the fifth story and falling out of bed. Getting back to oral rehydration, it's generally a good option to at least try for mild to moderate dehydration. A 2006 Cochrane review compared oral versus IV rehydration for kids with acute gastroenteritis and looked at 17 trials with a total of more than 1,800 participants. They found more treatment failures associated with oral rehydration, which makes sense because there are going to be some kids who can't tolerate oral fluids, whereas just about everyone can get fluid through an IV. But no increase in complications compared to IV therapy. Overall, the review determined that for every 25 kids you start on oral rehydration therapy, one will fail and require IV fluids. Anything with a 96% success rate is probably worth a shot. There are different oral rehydration protocols at just about every hospital, but the general idea is to give small volumes, usually starting with as little as 5 to 10 milliliters, every few minutes and increasing the volume as tolerated. Strictly speaking, you should give your patient Pedialyte, Enfilite, or fluid made with the World Health Organization recipe because they have the right ratios of salt and sugar to maximize absorption. 
If you want to make your own, the rehydration project recipe says to mix 6 teaspoons of sugar and half a teaspoon of salt into 1 liter of water. Juice, broth, ginger ale, and even sports drinks don't have the right mix, but they still get used, which is generally fine because something is better than nothing. Just watch out for juice, or at least water it down. Pediatricians hate juice in general for nutritional and dental reasons, and because it has such a high sugar concentration, it can sometimes make diarrhea worse instead of helping you rehydrate. Back on our case, our 5-year-old looked moderately dehydrated, so we tried oral rehydration. The first few sips went okay, but since this is an educational example, we can't have things go smoothly, and once we got to bigger volumes, he started puking it all up again. So he's the 1 in 25 who needs IV fluids. When you start IV rehydration, it doesn't matter what the cause is or what the patient's sodium looks like. The first step is always to give 20 cc per kilogram boluses of normal saline until the heart rate and blood pressure stabilize. Our patient is a little tachycardic, so we'll give him one bolus. Remember, he's 18 kilos, so that comes out to 360 cc's of saline. To figure out how much fluid your patient needs, we use the estimated degree of dehydration from our initial assessment and multiply by the patient's body weight. If you have the baseline weight, you should use it, but if you don't, using the current weight doesn't make too much difference. The point here isn't to come up with an exact amount of fluid to replace. Almost nothing in medicine ever works out that perfectly. You're just trying to get a general idea to guide you as you get started. In the end, the clinical response is going to be what you use to decide exactly how much fluid to give. Our patient was moderately dehydrated, so we'll call it 6%, and weighed 18 kilograms. 6% of 18 kilograms comes out to 1.08 liters, or 1,080 cc's. If you gave any bolus fluids, which we did, you take that out of the estimated deficit to get the amount of fluid that still needs to be replaced. In our case, it's 720 milliliters, which we try to replace over 24 hours. Now we have our deficit, but if you only give 720 cc's over the next 24 hours, you're going to fall even farther behind because you forgot the maintenance fluid needs. There are a few different ways to calculate maintenance fluids, and they all come out about the same, so you can use whatever works best for you. Because it fits well with what we're trying to do, we'll use the 24-hour needs. In a 24-hour period, kids usually need 100 cc's per kilogram per day for the first 10 kilograms of body weight, 50 per kilo per day for the next 10, and 20 per kilo per day for every kilogram after that. Our 18 kilogram patient gets a full liter of fluid for being over 10 kilograms, and 50 times 8 for the rest of his weight, for a grand total of 1.4 liters in maintenance fluid for the day. Put that together with our deficit, and our patient needs to get about 2.1 liters of fluid in the next 24 hours. There is some wiggle room in how quickly you run the patient's fluids in. Some sources suggest you should give half the deficit in the first 8 hours and then the rest over the next 16, and others say to give it at a constant rate over 24 hours. It doesn't matter too much either way, and I couldn't find any evidence to support one over the other, but the constant rate over 24 hours does have less room for error since you don't have to change the rate after 8 hours. For simplicity's sake, we'll go with a 24-hour infusion in our example. 2.1 liters divided by 24 hours comes out to 87.5 cc's per hour. You can round up or down, again, the point isn't to be exact down to the last milliliter, and if your patient can manage to take anything by mouth on top of the IV fluids, consider it a bonus. One of the nicest things about working with kids is that the vast majority of them have healthy hearts and kidneys, so if you overestimate your deficit or they drink extra fluid, they might get a little bit swollen, but as long as you keep an eye on them and don't keep pumping them full of extra fluid, they'll just pee out anything extra. One last point on choice of fluid. 
We won't get into all the details of how to do it, but if you calculate the expected electrolyte losses from vomiting or diarrhea, along with normal maintenance requirement, it comes out to about D5 one-third normal saline for a replacement fluid. Since that's not a thing most hospitals stock, most people end up getting D5 half normal saline. The reason for giving half versus quarter normal saline is all about tonicity. Normal serum osmolality is in the 275 to 295 range, and in order for fluid to stay in the vessel, we want to be at or a little over that concentration. If we go lower, osmosis is going to pull fluid out of circulation and into the tissues. That's why normal saline at 308 osms is a great fluid for giving boluses. For longer infusions, D5 one quarter normal saline starts out at 321 osms, which sounds pretty good. The problem is the dextrose gets absorbed, which leaves you with a hypotonic solution and can tip your patient into hyponatremia. Again, we'll talk more about sodium and free water in another episode, but for now, just remember D5 half normal saline is a good bet for rehydrating your patient. Once you have your IV rate set, just keep an eye on your patient to make sure they're responding to therapy with heart rates coming down, urine output picking up, and just looking better in general. You can give more fluid if he isn't quite turning around, or stop it early if he looks great and has started drinking over the IV. As for our dehydrated 5-year-old, we finally got something to go right, and after about 18 hours on the IV, he's feeling better and running around so much his nurse keeps asking us to cap his fluids before he trips on the tubing. And that's where we'll tie up this episode. For take-home points, remember that the history and clinical findings are the most important part of diagnosing dehydration. Oral rehydration is definitely worth a try for anyone that isn't starting to creep towards shock, and if they need IV fluids, make sure to account for both maintenance needs and replacement fluids when you decide the rate. Most importantly, monitor your patient to make sure he or she is getting better and adjust your plan as needed. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please give us a rating on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you found us. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can email directly at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.